Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Join hosts and educator extraordinaires Michal Beton and Noam Weisman for the latest weekly podcast from Unpacked, Wandering Jews as they tackle topics and uncomfortable questions about Israel, Judaism, and Zionism that surround them with the goal of working towards the answers together with their listeners. No matter where you're from, if you've ever wondered about anything, this is the podcast for you. Listen to Wandering Jews with Michal and Noam on your favorite podcast app today. Wandering Jews is brought to you by Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. This is the lunch rush at your local deli. Orders are flying in online, on the phone, and in person. Order for Nick. So is it possible that fast internet could help your business outrun the rush? It is with Comcast Business. Powering your connected devices with gig speed Wi-Fi and fast downloads and uploads. With Comcast Business, next level speed isn't just possible, it's happening. Comcast Business. Powering possibilities. Requires gigabit internet and compatible router. Actual speeds vary. Welcome to Creature Feature, production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host of many parasites, Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology. Today on the show, I am interviewing wildlife expert, biologist, and filmmaker, Forrest Galante. Welcome! Hey, how's it going? Good to see you. I'm very excited to talk to you because uh, you deal with a lot of personal interaction with wildlife, which is way more bold than I've ever been willing to be <laughs> with. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm sort of a, I'm a binoculars type person. I like to observe from a distance, I would say. Um, but you are very drawn to getting right in there. So uh, first, just describe a bit for people what you do in terms of your videos and your work in wildlife education and biology. Yeah, sure. So I'm a wildlife biologist who primarily focuses on critically endangered edge of extinction species. Uh, I work with a plethora of wild animals uh, from those that most people have never heard of to things like elephants and lions. And, um, you know, we do a lot of different stuff from uh, basically the ultimate game of hide and seek, which is figuring out whether or not some of these animals are actually extinct and uh, or if they've just, you know, been overlooked for a number of years to a lot of uh, human wildlife conflict mitigation, which is something that I've worked on a lot where we translocate animals that are in human wildlife conflict zones, um, come up with creative solutions, like basically any non-lethal mitigation methods. And then, uh, you know, another field that I work on is uh, invasive species, uh, figuring out eradication efforts, how to combat invasive species, uh, areas in which invasive species are harming native uh, flora and fauna and ecosystems and you know, it's a lengthy combination of stuff, and a lot of that stuff can be seen on Discovery Channel, Animal Planet. I recently launched a YouTube channel that is growing like gangbusters, which is a lot of fun, um, where I get to do sort of more intimate, less polished, more just kind of fun stuff that I want to do in the vein of those three categories. And, um, you know, anything with wildlife is what I like doing and communicating. One of the things that is so difficult in terms of human interactions with wildlife is the there's when you have an ecosystem you have like this very delicate balance in the past maybe 50 100 years we've just kind of come to understand like how much our behavior has impacted wildlife including things like hey maybe we should stop uh taking mongoose and throwing them at snakes to make them kill the snakes because that actually has right. a negative impact on the environment. We've done so many things that has been, you know, unintentionally harmful, sometimes intentionally harmful, where we're just like, hey, we want to wipe out these animals because we're annoyed by them. Um, and so do you think nowadays, uh, do people really in general have like an understanding of how their behavior impacts animal species? Or is it still sort of sometimes a struggle 
to communicate to communities like, hey, like we actually, yes, this is just like a tiny fish that maybe is not very charismatic, but we do need to protect it. Uh, I think the general understanding, the general perception has certainly shifted substantially from where it used to be. You know, the idea of introducing cane toads to eat beetles and uh, mongoose to, to quell rat populations and things like that. That's that's a thing of the past. We now understand the massive ramifications, negative ramifications that uh, human induced introductions like that have. And I think, you know, generally public perception has changed. I think it's become a little pendulous where it's probably swung too far in the wrong direction a little bit. And then it will end up getting back to neutrality. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, now if you open up Instagram, you can't go. On, I can't go on my Instagram without seeing a gorgeous gal in a bikini swimming next to a great white shark, which is <laughs> probably also not something we should right. be encouraging. Right. Like it's it sort of it's swung a little bit too far. And they're all, you know, the same thing with people from PETA that go out and get your grocery store lobster and dump them into the wrong ocean because they think they're doing good for the world. You know that they're not. They're actually harming the world. So I think the pendulum went from too extreme in one direction to probably too extreme in the other. And now it's starting to backshift to a place of better understanding, more neutrality. And um, that's exactly what we need. You know, we don't need people out there just destroying and consuming and throwing out invasive species for the heck of it. We also don't need people that are uh, eco-terrorists in the sense of robbing grocery stores to introduce Maine lobster into Southern California, you know, because yeah. it's good <laughs> for the individual lobster. We need We need a nice like everything in life, we need something in the middle where we go, okay, we have a good understanding of this. Here are the good things to do. Here are the bad things to do. And here's how we can manage it. And we're, Katie, we're in a, we're in a time and place in human history. And I don't foresee that changing, certainly not in our lifetime, where pretty much all wildlife and ecosystems have to be managed at this point. Mm -hmm. There are so many people on the planet. There's so much development and construction. We don't have the luxury of just being like, leave it alone, let it be like that that that's a thing of the past for the majority of wild spaces in the planet. Most of it has to be managed today by human beings. And so we need to be good docents of that. Yeah, I, I of the uh, releasing lobsters into their non-native habitats. I've seen videos of people buying goldfish from pet stores and then releasing them into their like local pond. Don't absolutely right. do not do that. The goldfish does not yearn for freedom. The goldfish uh, is not going to be a native species of carp to whatever local water system you have, and it could devastate the local species there. Uh, the best thing you Correct. can do for a pet store goldfish, if you feel sorry for it, is to get it a nice big tank and uh, not overfeed it. <laughs> it's, but I, I think people like they'll see something like that, like a, a pet store goldfish and think like this this poor thing is sad and so I need to do something and I think there's also like a lot of um with social media there's sometimes this like reward that you get like if you do some stunt like that and you get a lot of views and so people want to do that it's like if I've seen these horrible videos where it's like clear that someone set up some situation where they're like quote-unquote saving an animal but they're not they're not a wildlife expert they're not a veterinarian they're, they they don't know what they're doing but they've created this this scenario where it's like well i'm now holding this like wild animal uh and then you get all this attention on social media um but on the other hand i think there are a lot of people who genuinely desire to have positive safe interactions with wildlife in a non-destructive way um do you have any advice for people who like may see your videos or something and like they recognize like, well, I'm not I'm not an expert. And I don't want to harm the environment at all. But I also really want to have this like personal relationship with wildlife. I want to get in there and go on hikes or go on excursions and like uh, get as close to wildlife as I can without hurting it. Like what what uh, advice would you have for people? Yeah, do it. I mean, I think that the best way to learn is is hands on learning, you know, but I'm not saying go out and pick up a rattlesnake because you saw someone on YouTube do it. <laughs> Everything you do in life, it's just like driving a car, right? Just because you see somebody in a movie uh, on the Fast and Furious jumping a car off a skyscraper and landing in a helicopter doesn't mean you should take your uh, 93 Toyota Tacoma and go try jumping off a skyscraper, right? Like mm. you need to Learn about driving. Hang on, you need gotta to get a driver's license. Write that down just to remember that for the future. 
But yeah. yes, go on. <laughs> you need to, you know, learn what driving is, uh, study it, go and get a driver's license, you know, go slowly. And then before you go on the freeway, you know, it's the same thing with wildlife and ever and basically anything in life you do. And the point of what I'm saying is education is key, right? The only reason that I'm able to actively do the wildlife work that I do and, and share that on social media is because I have a long standing background in it, education in it. And I'm never just harassing wildlife for the sake of harassing it. You know, if you're like, oh, I want to go out there and mess with animals. It's like, well, you shouldn't do that. But if you're like, oh, I really want to work with animals. Great. Go and get a job or volunteer. There's a bazillion citizen science programs that would love your help, you know, pulling baby sea turtles out of the eggs and hatching them and letting them go onto the beach or collecting snakes for counts or the list goes on and on and on invasive species, blah, 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 blah. So do it. I think people should absolutely do it. But you cannot just go out there because somebody you saw something on YouTube or because you just think it's the right thing to do and just start messing with animals. Quite frankly, you're going to end up getting hurt. So the animals, yeah. of course, are going to have a bad time, but you're going to end up getting hurt. You know, if you're an amateur and you just decide to go start messing with venomous snakes or trying to trap stuff or catch it, you're going to get hurt. It's it's there's no point to it. Yeah. And I mean, I think the the citizen science aspect is really exciting because if if, you, you know, people might think like, well, you know, I, I I really want to go out there and like really come face to face with these wild animals. But I don't have like a whole background in it and I don't see any entry point for it. But like there there are a lot of citizen science programs where you don't necessarily have to be a trained biologist, but you go and you volunteer and they will train you and then you can do surveys, you can do work. Like I used to do um, bird watching that actually would contribute to a census of the local birds. So it was one of my right. favorite things, bird watching, plus I got to help out. So it's like being able to be out in nature and, uh, you know, there are a lot of these these things where it's like, hey, you can like actually go and try to catalog uh, these from anything from fish to small mammals to megafauna, anything. Yep. And, uh, yep. you know, you don't have to be an expert, but if you look at where they need volunteers, uh, they can teach you like what to do on these surveys and you can actually help and have that really awesome experience. And it gives you purpose, which is a nice thing. You know, uh, I hate hiking, Katie. Most people wouldn't believe it because if you watch me, I basically <laughs> always have a backpack. Yeah, on my it's back hard for me to on my feet. Hard for me to kind of uh, understand that, given that it seems like most of what you do is hiking. Well, I hate it though. I, I, <laughs> I've never understood people that hike for the sake of hiking. I just don't understand. I don't. I don't see the enjoyment in it. But if I'm out on a bird survey, if I'm looking for herb. If I know that at the end of that long hike, there's an incredible lake with an endemic species of fish or turtle, I'll hike for weeks. Like that's a motivator that has purpose to it. But hiking just to hike, I've never personally understood. And while, while not everybody has to share that sentiment, I think that people that do find purpose in their wildlife work will find it far more rewarding than just being like a looky-loo, basically. And being like, oh, that's cool. Look at that. Uh, if you're if you're doing the, the looky-loo with purpose, it really adds a lot of value to what you're doing and you feel good about it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've found that to be the case, especially with like taking photographs of species like you can uh, upload photos that you've taken to like iNaturalist to these citizen science programs, like even from like you don't even have to be out in the wilderness. You can be in mm -hmm. your own backyard and you take a photo of something interesting and you send it into uh, these these organizations, sometimes you can even catch like an invasive species and say like, oh, I found this uh, in my backyard yep. at this time, at this date, in this location. And that's really helpful. And it feels like almost like you're catching Pokemon, but for <laughs> uh, the sake of the local ecology. Exactly. Exactly right. So I am really interested in the topic of invasive species uh, and uh, so why is it so important to keep track of invasive species uh, since like they are, you know, they're generally animals or they're plants, too. So why is it important for us to care whether there is some animal that, you know, isn't uh, native to the area who seems to be doing really well? For instance, like if you have a species of fish, say that is now uh, becoming more populous, that was actually not from the area that was introduced somehow. Um, why is that of importance? 
yeah, I mean, mostly because of the habitat destruction, because of not habitat, but the destruction that they cause. I mean, for the most part, when you introduce, and this is not always the case, some some invasive species are pretty benign. They don't do a whole lot of damage, but most of the time, I'd say, you know, don't quote me on this, 90% or greater of the time, an animal that is displaced and released into a new ecosystem that successfully reproduces is a big problem for a native animal because if that little species of fish is put into a new pond where it's never been before and all of a sudden is breeding and thriving, that means that it's out competing with the existing species that are there for resources. That resource can be food, that resource can be space. And ultimately what that means is the native inhabitants of that ecosystem will be edging closer and closer to extinction. Because if you take, let's just say, a largemouth bass and you throw it in a pond that historically has only had, you know, California roaches in it, which is a native fish we have here in California. Well, those largemouth bass are going to outcompete it for space. They're going to start eating up all the roaches. And over time, there will be no roaches left and there'll be a bunch of really big fat bass. But guess what? Eventually, when the bass have eaten all the roaches and there's nothing but big fat bass left, all the bass are then going to die because there's no food left for them. There's nothing else left for them to survive. This is an oversimplified version of what happens. But if you think about it like that, ultimately, those largemouth bass will collapse and you'll have a big dead zone where a healthy population and an ecosystem used to thrive. So that's why we have to monitor it. We can't just let species go run rampant all over and chuck stuff everywhere we want it to be. And a perfect example of that is Florida, right? Florida is just a mess. Like everything, (laughs) there are invasive species everywhere. Everything survives and thrives there. You've got really, really irresponsible people doing things like chameleon ranching, which is letting go chameleons. You've got all these green iguanas that are eating all the native plants and vegetation. You've got Burmese python that have reduced the uh, the mesopredator population of things like raccoons and uh, opossums and native species like that down by 90% in some areas. You know, it's just, it's it's a mess. And so if you allow things like that to continue, you'll you'll have a lot of die off you'll lose a lot of species diversity and species diversity is the key to a healthy planet so are a lot of invasive species from the exotic pet trade do you think um depends where you go uh certainly not the majority definitely the minority in florida i'd say it's the majority um but globally it's definitely the minority most invasive species have been brought there by man either through, you know, agricultural trafficking or, uh, you know, just aboard something they didn't realize. Like the the zebra mussel, for instance, is a perfect example that, um, you know, that's a that's a tiny little mussel that grips onto the hulls of boats. And the second you put your boat into a new body of water, they they spawn. And all of a sudden you have a new ecosystem that is flooded by zebra mussels, which does all kinds of damage. They take up all the space on the bottom and everything else. And that has nothing to do with pet trade or food or anything else. It's just an invasive species that sticks to boats. Um, so, you know, the majority are not from the pet trade, but there there are some very, very bad ones like the Burmese pythons, the green iguanas, uh, a whole lot of species of fish like the Placostomus armored catfish that are from the pet trade that have caused a lot of damage. Yeah, yeah. Never, never if you have uh, exotic pets, which... Uh, can be tricky in of in itself, like never release them, uh, never re- release any, like if you have a fish tank full of fish and you have to move, uh, never just like release them into your local pond, local lake, whatever. Um, most likely they'll just die. Um, but if they, on the off chance that they don't, <laughs> like that could be an even bigger problem. It's hard, I think, in general to realize that like they're a tiny animal, like a little zebra mussel or a little fish could do much harm if it like gets out. Uh, even a, it, I mean, actually what can be really bad is like invasive plants. So like you have an aquarium plant uh, and like you, you know, flush it down or you, it gets down a drain and then it gets into the local sort of water system and that plant can just start taking over. Uh, so it's like, you know, animals and plants are so uh, have so much of a keen desire to survive that a, a, a fairly innocuous action like cleaning out your fish tank uh, and rinsing the, these some of these plants like down the sink or something could lead to some really bad consequences. 
I would hope that people just sort of know that and think that if they're getting into the pet trade, but you know, or not pet trade, but pet hobby. But you know, you never know. People are people can be pretty dumb. It's education, right? Like you, you if there's a pet store that's just like, hey, here's some fish and here's some plants, and they don't really tell you anything about about them, how to take care of them, or like any of the perils of like, do not make sure that this stuff doesn't get down like a storm drain. You know, people may it may just exactly. never occur to them that like a tiny little plant from a fish tank could cause any harm should it be released. Uh, So I think it's just so important for people to understand that. And I think like most people who are like experienced, uh, you know, uh, aquarists or animal owners do appreciate that or understand that. But yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's something where it's just a domino effect that is hard. It's hard to conceive of that you could have such a great impact but just through kind of an accident but it definitely can happen witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 infinity qx80 join us march 20th live from the edge at hudson yards in new york city Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. So do you ever find an animal that is outside of its range? Like you'll find something that is like uh, not what you're expecting to find there, but it is not actually an invasive species? Uh, Oh, yeah. I mean, that's I mean, that's a big part of what I've made my career doing is finding lost animals, but more so than finding lost animals like new distributions. I mean, I had a run in with a hammerhead 400 miles outside of its known range. Uh, when I was just a teenager, I redefined the species distribution of Mastacophis lateralis, which is the, uh, uh, I think it's, what's the common name? The pink coach whip, striped coach whip? I'm not sure. Lateral coach whip would be li- lined coach whip. I don't know. Yeah, the species distribution and range distribution for them. Yeah, I mean, we find animals outside of their known range all the time. I mean, I put up a video on that YouTube channel I was mentioning where we found the first ever record of a leopard epaulet shark in Tufi, Papua New Guinea which everybody had historically said uh, there are no leopard epaulets in Tufi because of the bathymetric barriers. It's too deep. The canyons are too severe. These shallow water species wouldn't go here. And I got there and started talking to the local fishermen. And they're like, oh, yeah, they're, they're all over here. And I was like, no way. Do you think you can find one? They're like, yeah, we'll find you some tonight. And they went out and found one in like half an hour. Wow. 
And, uh, you, you know, we redefined that species distribution as it was known to science by 400 miles, you know, like just like that. And all the native, uh, well, not all, but many of the native people knew about it, but science was unaware of it because science dictated that due to these certain barriers and the fact that there had been no records, there's no way that this animal could be here. However, the native people were, don't pay attention to that. And they're like, yeah, animals right here. You yeah. Know? So, <laughs> yeah, we, we encounter that all the time. So yeah, that's a, the very common thing that we deal with while uh, doing surveys in the field. Yeah, that's an interesting thing to me, because I think that there is this, sometimes this happens where you'll have, um, you know, a population of people who are familiar with the area uh, that have some knowledge of animals uh, that's either, you know, current uh, knowledge because they fish there and they interact with uh, sea life all the time, or it's something that's passed along culturally through generations. And that's like, mm -hmm. it's kind of placed in like this separate category as so sometimes it's placed in a separate category as science because it's like, well, these are observations by, you know, non-professionals um, and they're not really, they're not cataloged in the same way that scientific observations are but they seem really valuable. Like, how does that uh, does that play a part a lot in terms of like finding animals in new ranges or finding animals that were thought to be extinct or not exist in a certain area? You mean just just native rec or just uh, amateur records of them? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, of course, uh, especially from native people. You know, I think that's. Uh... That's the most significant is working with local hunters, fishermen, things like that. People that are out the best scientists. I've always said this and I get a lot of criticism from academics for it, but I really don't care because it's, in my opinion, the truth. The best scientists, observational scientists are people that are interacting with the wildlife every single day. They're right. not people sitting in an office that have written papers. Sure. There's two different facets to that, right? The people that are the academics. They might be able to tell you the specifics of the scale structure and the jaw morphology and this and that that the local hunter would never know because when he finds it, he lops its head off and eats it. But they don't know the first thing about tracking it, finding it, understanding its its uh, role in the environment and how it behaves around other animals. Whereas that local hunter who might not even know the name of the animal we're talking about, he can actually understand that species because he spends a lot of time observing it. He's out there hunting it, fishing for it chasing it around, chasing around animals that compete with it, so on and so forth. And so, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be anywhere near the success rate that I've had if it wasn't for all of the tremendous help from local native people in every region, every location, everything that, I, that I've worked in, because we need their help. I mean, that's the only way that I get the right. information that we get. And me just going in there blindly and being like, I know how to find stuff. I'd never find anything. So um, yeah, you have to work with local local people and, you know, you have to take a lot of it with a with a grain of salt, because in many of these nations, there is uh, lore and mystery and tradition that aren't grounded in science, you know, like religion that isn't grounded in science, things like that. But you still have to observe and take in the tidbits of it that are useful. And yeah. Yeah, it's 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 something where it's like you you can use both the kind of um, more analytical quantifiable aspect of of science with the just immense amount of experience and time that people who actually live there uh and live daily life interacting with the local environs might have of these animals it seems like they're they're very they're very uh complementary things to each other like both respecting that like hey if they say they've seen this or or it's it's part of their folklore that this animal is in this region, then like maybe there's something to it. And then, you know, respecting that and combining expertises seems really important. Exactly right. Exactly right. Have you ever been like truly extremely surprised? Uh, like, like what was the most surprising find uh, for you in terms of finding an animal that was either thought not to exist in the region or thought to uh, have been extinct? The most surprising find? I mean, we found eight species previously thought to be extinct. So each one of those is pretty surprising. <laughs> um, you know, when when something is deemed extinct, it's it doesn't mean it's hiding in a bush or around around a corner. It means it's gone. Um, I think the one that was probably the most uh, spine chilling or well, the first one was big, the Zanzibar leopard. But 
holding the Fernandina Island tortoise in my hand, holding an extinct animal that, you know, had the mythicalness of big Bigfoot because only one in history had ever been seen 114 years prior and me diving into a bush and picking up the second one. That was that was a pretty big shock. I mean, you know, it's finding a tortoise on an island. That's not like finding something out in a giant jungle. You know, it's it's like a finite area, even right. if it's a big area. And um, yeah, that was pretty surprising. So, um, you know, all of these stories made major news headlines and made a pretty big splash globally. So I think not the reason I say that is I don't think I was the only one surprised. Yeah. You know, I think the world <laughs> was pretty surprised when we found some of these animals. So, yeah. Are there uh, are there discoveries that are maybe less like sensational, maybe an animal that's less charismatic that you wish people knew more about or appreciated more like an animal that doesn't maybe win the popularity contest, but something that uh, is either endangered or um, that you have found uh, that you think is really interesting, really exciting, but is just not something that gets as much love or attention? Uh, no, I really don't believe in that no at all. I believe that it's much more about how it's communicated. And one of the sad things about uh, the world we live in is the conservation organizations that are doing such wonderful work, and I won't name any or throw them under the bus, but they they do such great work. They're so terrible at their messaging and public mm. facing. And, uh, you know, <laughs> if you if, if, if you know, if you know, uh, the, the field that we're discussing, you know who I'm talking about, but some of their finds are tremendous. You know, they, they, they rediscover incredible things or they redefine things that are unbelievable. And these are some of larger conservation organizations and the messaging and the public interfacing and the way that the information is disseminated is so poor that people don't get excited about it. And some mm. of them could be so grand. And I think that's one of the differences between perhaps what I do and what some of these very large conservation organizations do is like, I can find a tiny little blind snake, which is a new species we rediscovered just about two years ago now in literally a kitchen dumpster in the back of a desert lodge in Peru and get millions of people excited about it and to watch it because I am genuinely so passionate and excited about it and so thrilled to find this thing. Whereas some of these organizations can find an incredibly gorgeous, charming, beautiful bird that's been lost for hundreds of years and rediscover it. And, you know, a couple thousand people see it and that's it. And it's because of the way the messaging is done and the public interfacing is done around the species rediscovery. And it's it's really unfortunate because many times I've tried to offer my services and, and try to I always try and promote the work that these organizations are doing. And it's at no fault of their own. I always try and promote it. I always share these rediscoveries on my social media. But when you have somebody that just publishes a paper or, you know, they make like a really dry video with a bunch of still images about the animal, it doesn't go anywhere. It mm -hmm. doesn't it doesn't do anything. That's the sad thing about academic papers. When's the last time, Katie, you and I are both interested in this field. When's the last time you read an academic paper? I mean, I read them a lot, so I probably. Oh, that's uh, good. I do. A few days ago. Okay, I mean, I but do too. I don't. I don't I read it. The... I don't read it from start to end. I usually go through, kind of skim through, and then read the sections that right. are relevant. Like the last time I've actually sat abstract. down, yeah. read every single page of an academic paper has got to be like I don't know, many many months. Yeah, I mean, I'm the same. I have to read them for my work, obviously. And I skim the abstract and look at a couple sections and go, cool, that was interesting. But, you know, that's it. And the majority of people, which is what we need, by the way, we're talking about, you know, public perception and making a difference. We need the majority of people to care. The majority of people don't even click on an academic paper. They don't open it. They don't read the abstract. I, they just don't. You know, they're on TikTok. They're on Twitter, whatever. And I think there's obviously room in this world for both. But some of those phenomenal finds on some of these lost species, new species, redefined species, whatever, they should be on TikTok. And I hate TikTok, by the way. Like, I think it's <laughs> a, just an awful medium, but it should be, you know, because yeah. you should get five million kids to watch it and go, oh, my God, that's so cool. And they're not. So anyway, it's a very long winded way of answering your question. But I don't think it's about the species and the charismaticness. I think it's about the way the information is presented on these animals because every animal's cool. You yeah. can make an earthworm tremendously cool. If you learn about earthworms and how neat they are and what they do, they're incredibly cool. Every animal is cool. It's just about the way that the information is shared. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that 
I get a lot of really strong reactions to animals on the show that, I mean, I really love and are maybe gross and small and seemingly not very charismatic. But then when once people like hear about them and hear why, you know, I love them and why I think they're like something little like the velvet worm. And if you look at like an actual picture of it, like up close and you describe all these amazing characteristics of it, then other people really love it. Like, I, I think that it's exactly. it is like it is not hard to convince people uh, to love these animals as long as the information is really clearly communicated. I think with with academic papers, I think that one of the main barriers is is that they are very um, uh, they can be very difficult to read unless you have specific training in that area like like or if you 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 sometimes even need to completely understand like statistical analysis to understand an academic paper which is just it's not that's not easy for people to do you can't just like you know uh, you know like read the wikipedia on statistical analysis or how to interpret a scientific paper and then be able to do it it's it's genuinely difficult sometimes to understand these papers and then there's also the the problem of like converting a scientific paper into like a news article and sometimes there's a disconnect uh between the paper and the article not just in terms of like uh, uh the proper information the article may be completely accurate but then like missing some of the key things in the the scientific paper that are so interesting and fascinating that just kind of get glossed right. over because it's it's Correct. there's just like a little bit of a disconnect. Like I'll read a news article and then read the paper it was based on. And it's like they they've missed some of the most uh, exciting things that the study has talked about or something that's really funny or interesting. Just like like the kind of like uh, you, reading like the methodology of like some of these these research papers about uh, insects or or chimpanzees or whatever and then you find something really funny about the study design and it really humanizes it or of like hey this is what they had to do to like understand uh this animal uh like i just read a paper on um chimpanzee facial well not facial recognition rear end recognition and they had to like <laughs> in in the study like the, the idea is that that primates will often like be able to do the same kind of facial recognition we do with faces on rear ends and so they had to curate this collection of primate rear ends and then also like human rear ends and faces and then show them to primates and humans. And it's just such a funny, I think it's yeah. a funny study. And, uh, you know, I thought the news articles were pretty good uh, of, of the study, but they were like, like when you really get into some of the details of the methodology, which sounds like something boring, like, oh, people aren't going to be interested in the methodology. But then when you really get into it. I think people would find it really funny and really fun. And then, Correct. of course, it's also Correct. a really important uh, research. And so I think breaking down this idea of like what people would actually find boring or not, like I, I don't I, I don't think that science is boring at all. I think that when people feel pu like pushed out of it, like, well, this isn't for me. I'm not going to be able to understand this. Uh, it's going to be beyond me. That's when it's not interesting is when it's not accessible. But once you've made it accessible yeah. and say like, look, this is actually straightforward and you are perfectly capable of understanding this. I just have to be good at communicating it to you. That's when people will be interested in it. There's there's multiple problems. And if the network ever hears this, they'll call and be yell at me, which is fine. But, you know, one the the first part is the elitism behind academia, mm -hmm. uh, which is sort of what you just just touched on and, and the sort of the snobbery and the way that a lot of things are written. The second part is, and there's so many more problems than this, but in my opinion, another big part of it is, in that messaging as far as digestibility is uh, everybody catering to the lowest common denominator, you know, and I think there's a reason, that's why I say the network will get mad. There's a reason <laughs> Animal Planet's no longer, right? It's like they kept chasing like a lower and lower view. And I, I personally experienced that because they'd come to me and be like, oh, this isn't exciting enough. This isn't interesting enough. People don't care about this. People don't care about that. And I just don't agree. You know, I'm like, yeah. I don't agree. And here's why. And I'm, I think I'm living proof of that because I've managed to create thriving media channels outside of Animal Planet uh, where I communicate things that I think are fascinating and people do as well. And that's the nice thing about the day and age of the Internet is, you know, you can jump on YouTube for free and get to learn and see about a lot of these things versus sit through a, a TV show on, you know, 
hunting for Bigfoots, which is all just nonsense anyway, uh, you know, because that's the kind of thing that they think people want to watch as opposed to like genuinely communicating interesting stuff. So anyway, that's a whole nother podcast we can talk <laughs> about for hours as to as to how that uh, information is shared and, and why chase why not. <laughs> I don't want to get myself in trouble, but why sharing information that you think is best for everybody because you're catering to the lowest common denominator is not it's it's insulting to the viewer. Yeah, no, I I mean, I agree. I think that the it's kind of a snowball effect, too, because it's like, well, this is all we show. This is the only kind of content that we have. And this is all that people watch. And therefore, this is what people like to watch. It's like, well, but if you have different types of uh, shows on your channel that are uh, more, you know, I mean, it's 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 like sort of the same issue in the film industry, right, where it's like, it like well people only want to watch marvel movies it's like well but you're only serving them marvel movies to a certain extent Correct. and like like Correct. other movies that are now everybody's yeah sorry and, go ahead yeah and like movies that aren't marvel movies are marvel movies because they're copying the marvel movie format i'm not saying i i don't have a problem with marvel movies i think they're fun but like you know the idea that like well people don't want this because all we're doing is serving this it's like well but you're only giving them this so how do you know that they don't want it and then when when they go outside of that format like you know like the barbie movie uh it's like people really loved it and and, and so you know yeah. i think basically i'm saying that um you know weird animals weird uncharismatic ugly animals are the barbie movie of the animal world people will love them <laughs> <laughs> witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 infinity qx80 Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. One thing I wanted to talk about is uh, it's a topic that I've brought up a few times before because I find it really interesting. And uh, it's a de-extinction. And it's something that can be... Uh, it's it's a very controversial topic because it's something where uh, it's the it's well I mean maybe you probably understand it better than I do so uh, 
I'll just ask you, like, what exactly is uh, de-extinction? Like, what is the concept behind it? Is it some kind of, like, far-off science fiction thing, or is it something we can actually do? <laughs> it's certainly something we can do. I mean, Colossal Biosciences is, uh, you know, it's actively doing it, and it's it's a company that's valued at billions of dollars now because of the work they're doing in it. Um, and it's it's happening. You know, I, I don't want to... I don't want to give anything away, but I'd say everybody should stay very closely tuned at the end of this year for a very large announcement. Ooh. And um, yeah, I certainly can't say more than that. But, um, uh, you know, look, what is the extinction? It's bringing back. I mean, the extinction is exactly what it sounds like. It's bringing back extinct animals. You know, yeah. this is not Jurassic Park. This is bringing back animals that uh, humans have had a hand in driving to extinction. And by bringing back those animals, and putting them back into ecosystems, it's repairing ecosystems. And, you know, a good example I try and give to people is because a lot of the a lot of the criticism that you read about the extinction is people being like, the ecosystem's healthy, it's fine, like, we don't need these animals back, which is clownish. It's the same as, uh, you know, imagine if you're an alien, and you land on Earth, and you go and find a, a population of people, and they all have jaundice. Well, mm -hmm. then you go, well, people are yellow, right? That's what people <laughs> look like. Human beings are yellow. They're they're fine. They're just yellow over there, and they die at a young age. Hey man, well, the, Sim the Simpsons was a good show. All right, <laughs> but, you're, but you know that's wrong. Like people shouldn't be yellow, and they shouldn't die at a young age. And that's how we look at a lot of these ecosystems. The Arctic's a perfect example. Like it's not healthy. You know, it, it's it's relatively healthy. Like it's getting by, but it would be a lot more healthy if we put mammoths back into a part of the tundra. You know, uh, Tasmania would be a far, far more thriving ecosystem if it had an apex predator back like the thylacine and the list goes on and on and on. And that's what the extinction, at least with the companies that I work with, uh, Colossal specifically, aim to do. They aim to repair the ecosystem, but through this radical conservation method, which is the extinction, which is genetic work to bring back animals that human beings have actively had a hand in eradicating. And it's a very exciting, very important, somewhat scary proposition that we should all be excited and interested in because this is not putting freaking mongoose in in uh, Hawaii. You know, this is a much, <laughs> much more noble cause and a much. Uh, a, 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 it, it may be I'll, I'll be candid here and, and without trying to offend your listeners or anybody else, it may be the first thing that human beings have done right in conservation in a very long time, because we there are lots of triumph stories of conservation. There really are. But they're very, very small. And uh, on a whole, we're losing at conservation. Conservation's only been around for 100 years, and we lose more and more species, more and more habitat and everything else every single year. This the extinction could be this radical effort that actually turns the table where we start winning the war of conservation. It's it's a very interesting concept because it's I mean, like like you kind of mentioned earlier, I think when people well, maybe not everyone but you know the extinction has this kind of like oh we're, we're doing a jurassic park thing where like we're playing god we're doing something we're not supposed to be doing but it's you know i mean it's very different from can, can, can i touch that quickly yeah absolutely. i don't mean to interrupt you but no go that's for sort it. Of, it, it it sort of it, it, gr it grinds my gears a little when i hear that we're playing god yeah we're playing god every single yeah. time we wipe out a species. We're playing God every single time we create a medicine. We're playing God every time we get in a step foot in a car because none of these are natural processes. Okay. Yeah. The extinction, all the extinction is trying to do at this point in time, this could certainly change. We could have some mad scientist movie crap happen. But at this point in time, all the extinction is trying to do is repair things that we've broken. Yeah. I don't think that's playing God. I think that's fixing things. And we've We've done so much to destroy it. We've played so much God already with ecosystems and environments by dumping species and changing them and manipulating them that it's like the argument of the playing God thing to me is, I mean, it, it's it's a laughable argument. I mean, it's interesting because even in those movies, I don't think the problem was that they were playing God. I think the problem was that they let children loose uh, with an apex predator on an island. But Right, but uh, no one's doing that, you know? <laughs> What we're not we're not uh, letting children loose with uh, passenger pigeons that we've cloned. Um, <laughs> exactly. I mean, I exactly I, exactly. I think it it is like I think that the the concern. I, I understand the concern about it because it's like often when we've tried to interfere with uh, nature, it has gone wrong. 
uh, because we didn't understand what we were doing. Like when we like the cane toad situation, anytime like we introduce a species because we want it to do a certain thing. Now, in this case, of course, with a lot of these introductions like the cane toad, it was not because we were trying to protect the environment. It was because we were trying to protect uh, uh, crops. So we were trying to protect profit. It was not it was not an attempt to like be good to the environment. And then, of course, that went spectacularly bad, and it's still bad today. Uh, The cane toad population is uh, still a problem in Australia. Worse than ever. Um, Worse than ever. Yeah, and so it's it's something where I think that we have this, you know, well-earned skittishness about, like, well, but if we do this, it could cause problems. And I I mean, I think more or less it's true. Like, if we if we any conservation we do, it could. Like there could be unintended consequences, but like you said, we're doing things all the time that have unintended consequences that are really bad. And those things aren't even directed towards trying to, you know, undo these things. Um, But like what would so because it's interesting to me, um, one of the arguments is like, well, it's kind of too late for a lot of these species like we certainly could bring them back but then you know these say like the forests in the US that were like the native habitat for say passenger pigeons well they by and large no longer exist so uh right. what what would these passenger pigeons do like they would you know could they really bring back these uh habitats or is it too late and then would we just have sort of a bunch of passenger pigeons than trying to become urban adapters because they don't have any of their natural environment. Like, do you think that, do you think it's not too late for a lot of these species to, to bring back these it, habitats? Or do you think sometimes it truly is just kind of too late? I mean, there's no blanket answer. That's the part of the thing about conservation. It's part of the thing about the extinction. It's part of the thing about anything dealing with wildlife is it's on a case by case basis. Uh, with the case of the passenger pigeon, I certainly not too late. I mean, there are decent size, not large swaths of forests that are still protected in, in national forests and national parks and things. So would you have the billions of passenger pigeons that were said to black out the sky in the early 1800s? No, well, that 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 will not be a possibility again. Could you have large flocks that live, you know, generally within uh, protected national forests? Absolutely. And they should be there. You know, we we're the ones who hunted them to extinction. Um some animals, I think it is too late for. I'm, I'm blanking on a specific example at this point, but you know, if you if you can think of a creature that, well, like to to be vague and generic here, dinosaurs. Yeah. Too late for dinosaurs, yeah. right? Their habitats change, the planets change. Nobody wants to bring back a T. Rex. You know, it's a great movie premise. It's not a great conservation premise. Yeah. It also is impossible. We cannot code for DNA that's fragmented six million years ago. You know, it's just not a thing. Um, but in the case of in a passenger pigeon where we shot it to extinction, a great auk where we've plucked them out of the off off of the planet for feathers and oil, a mammoth, a thylacine, the list goes on and on and on. Yeah, we should bring them back. We should repair what we've done. The dodos, we wiped out the dodos for fun because we'd like bopped them on the head, bopping <laughs> them on the head. They, they weren't even good to eat, you know, and that's been shown time and time again. Like, of course, dodos should come back. We should feel very guilty as a species that we ever did that, you know, and not not pretend we didn't do it and hide from it, but learn from it and try not to do it again in the future. The other the other thing I think is interesting is the uh, process uh, of the extinction, which is there are like it's very difficult. Say you wanted to bring back the dodo to just like clone a dodo from some kind of specimen. It's not it's not necessarily as straightforward as like taking some DNA creating like a perfect clone like sometimes de-extinction involves like taking like for maybe the passenger pigeon would involve taking a currently alive species and then either modifying its dna or using it as a surrogate for uh the the uh, passenger pigeon uh clone dna and so there would be some these aren't going to necessarily be perfect replicas of the animals they once were. Like, even if they're perfect genetic replicas, they would, you know, some element of an animal species, of course, is instinctive. Uh, but there's also some learning, like with birds, like there's a lot of capacity right. to learn. Uh, passenger pigeons aren't songbirds, but they're social birds. So, like, if we bring these 
back, they're not going to come prepackaged with everything that the animal once was, especially for a, a, an intelligent species like a mammoth. I mean, so much of elephant behavior is, is learned. They're highly intelligent, highly uh, sort of like social animals that learn generationally. So how... I don't necessarily think this means like it's a lost cause, but like how it, it seems like that is a huge challenge to like if we bring back something like a dodo or a mammoth, like how would we try to create a situation such that even if it's not a perfect replica of what this animal was, it at least has a chance and and to like start to reintroduce it in a way where it's being given sort of some of what would be missing like that, that social learning with, cause like you can't, there's no existing kind of mammoth groups to put like a cloned baby mammoth with to know what to do. Well, yes and no. I mean, you know, the, the Indian elephant is 99.6% related to the woolly mammoth, right? Mm-hmm. So if you make, if you make a replica of you, Katie, and it comes out as me, it's also not a perfect replica. Right. Right. But I can still learn from you. You can still be my mother or my mentor, my teacher, whatever you want to call it. And, uh, you know, I'm not a replica of you, but I'm also a human being, right? right. You're a human, I'm a human. And, and that's, that's sort of the foundation of this, right? If you bring back a mammoth, uh, it's, it's, it's just a big hairy elephant. And as long as it learns how to be an elephant, it can be a big hairy elephant up in the Arctic. Right. And mm-hmm. that's, that's, a simplified way of looking at it and the same thing can be said about dodo thylacine anything else it's um you know instinct will always be there uh nature will drive it over nurture but of course nurture will be a factor and uh in a lot of these cases if you're putting a thylacine back in tasmania if you're putting a mammoth up in the arctic it's going to have a very easy time because the ecosystem has been without that dominant force that keystone species for such a long time that the animal basically has this giant playground to learn how to be an animal again including and that is the nurture factor from both human beings conservationists people like myself who are on the conservation advisory board of a lot of these species as well as you know the surrogates well i think that's very i that makes me feel very hopeful i would love uh i I would love (laughs) to live in a world that is able to bring back some of these species um uh, well, one... I'm I'm very confident we will be. So stay tuned because I think, you know, in the next few years, it's all going to be happening. Well, if I will keep my eyeballs peeled for that news. Forrest, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, you know, my favorite thing, I, I have all the social channels, you know, all the, the regulars. And uh, my new thing, my new favorite thing is this this YouTube thing that I mentioned. We just launched it. It's pretty exciting. There's a whole lot of fun content on there. Extinct animals, rare species, finding new stuff, invasive species. And it's just my name, Forrest Galante, on YouTube. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's where people should check it out because I'm, I'm directing a lot of the stuff we're doing onto there now so that people can enjoy it. That's excellent. Yes, I will never say no to more animal content. Uh, thank Love you guys. <laughs> thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, if you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating or review. That absolutely helps. I read all the reviews. I print them all out. I, I put them in, bind them into a book, and then I read it as a bedtime story every night. Uh, and thanks to the Space Cossacks for their super awesome song, Exolumina. Creature Features, a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts like the one you just heard, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or hey, guess what? Wherever you listen to your favorite shows, I'm not your mother. See you next Wednesday. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 